Hey everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. But you should also take a look at our YouTube channel. You'll find that at at Blister Review, because we have been rolling out and continue to roll out a number of videos from our Blister Summit. So you can find those on our website, but you can also go to our YouTube channel and it's all right there for you. So whichever way you want to use to get there, it's actually fine by us. There's a lot of good information, a lot of good stuff. So just be sure to check them out wherever you check them out. And today, we're actually reviewing the news again, and we are getting back on schedule to be releasing these episodes that first Monday into the new month. And we are covering a lot of really important stories and some other interesting ones. And probably the most important thing you're going to hear in this conversation is how Cody broke his toe. You don't want to miss that. My goodness, Cody. Anyway, well, one other thing I actually should mention is that at the very end of our conversation, Cody and I propose a new segment for reviewing the news. The segment is called Mountain Town Advice. And long and short, if you have a question that you would like Cody and me to read on the air and give you our two cents, well, that's what we're doing with Mountain Town Advice. So, We may get to the point where we set up a specific email address for that. But till that happens, you can go to the blisterreview.com website, go to the nav bar and find where it says contact us. You can submit your Mountain Town advice questions there, or you can go ahead and DM us on Instagram. Let's start with those options for now. Maybe we'll get an email address set up for that. So again, we've got some really big topics that we're covering in this conversation, some really exciting ones. And so with that, let's just go ahead and review the news. Here we go. All right, Cody, I think we need to start this one with a coffee update. And I don't think you're going to like this. Oh, no. We have to start this again. <laughs> I have been using the Yura coffee maker a lot. Oh, this is bad. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> like a lot. And we just had our bike editor and running editor in town. They were staying at my place. For the first time... We did a direct comparison, made the same coffee out of the Mocha Master and the Yura. And David and Matt, who are coffee heads, these guys are doing the, you know, hand grinders. And we had long conversations about favorite techniques and ways to make coffee. They both were preferring the Yura. Mm. I like I I can't start off the podcast saying negative things about people I don't know, but I want to <laughs> right now. I understand. I really want to. <laughs> I understand. I how, how could you say that? I mean, so I've done the last four months straight 
of AeroPress. Like pretty decent quality, but you can tend to, you got to be on it. You can overbrew it. It's a, it's difficult, but overall I was like getting good, strong cup of coffee, which is what I really value. And I just made, cause this is my first day home mm-hmm. since February, <laughs> some Mocha Master coffee and I'm drinking it right here. And oh my God, it's so good. So much better. You actually get flavor out of the bean. Like the, you know how like good coffee has like the tasting notes? Like the yeah. Mocha Master, you get the tasting notes. That's why I found no other coffee making device. You can get that. That's why the Mocha Master to me is nails it. I don't disagree at all. Not that I've tried every form of making coffee. Yeah, of course. But I think on that comparison, I agree with you. And I think David and Matt would agree with you too. Okay. For the, we used a medium roast. It's It wasn't my go-to always coffee, but we used a medium roast. The Yura was a bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And I am starting to think, so I might need to change up some grind settings and the rest maybe for the Mocha Master. But yeah, when you say like, we, I think we all kind of like a little stronger versus mm-hmm. weaker. I think you're 100% right about the notes though. And to come full circle to an old fight of ours, you're drinking a dark roast right now? No, it's, I've kind of realized I've- uh, Oh, you came around. Well, I did you, because you realized I, st- I was right. I've cut you off. I'm sorry. Before you said you realized <laughs> I was right. No, I realized I was more drinking medium roast in general. I had slowly okay. shifted over without even knowing it. I had just had a uh-huh. preconceived notion um, using old kind of coffee making, mainly like French pressed that like dark roast was the thing. And I realized as I've gone back and forth, when I started gravitating towards darker roasts in my um, AeroPress, that I was like, okay, yeah, again, there's certain coffee making devices that beans go better with. So to me, like a darker roast goes for something when you're not getting like subtle notes and you're, you are just going for that like strength. And like, like you kind of said in that podcast, it does kind of tend to hide some imperfections in the bean itself. So if you're overbrewing it, you're not necessarily getting that bitterness out of like the, the middle of the uncooked bean. So that's why a darker roast in certain devices, I think is better for a mocha master, I do, the medium is kind of like my sweet spot. And I've kind of, you know, I realized I was drinking coffees that weren't even labeled light, medium, or do- dark, but you kind of look at them, you're like, oh, that's a full medium roast. That's not a dark roast. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's our coffee corner update. Yep. Okay. I'm happy to be home and reunited with my mocha master. I'll tell you that. Did you literally get home like last night? Yes. Like, okay. yeah, last night. And. The house has exploded as, as I'm exploding my van and four months of stuff living up yeah. in BC and just trying to get life back together. Yeah. Well, welcome home. And on that note, let's maybe do a little bit of a 50 recap. Um, been an interesting season, right? I mean, kind of started and we were like, I don't know how this is going to go. And it was like the most stressful season to date because... 
it was required so much patience and just watching weather over and over and looking into the long-term forecast and seeing nothing on the horizon. And then we just have a flurry, like 10-day flurry, traveling, hitting lines, traveling, hitting lines, traveling, hitting lines. Um, and then boom, back down again. And then we went on the traverse, which was huge. And then was back down again and then waiting and waiting and waiting. And then just this last little run uh, was again, uh, just a complete and utter flurry. We did, uh, we went for three lines in four days with the last of them all uh, was a, we did some back to backers and the last of them all was 28 miles and 8,500 vert. So like we finished off with like a marathon, <laughs> a legit marathon. So it was definitely it was ended up being very successful. I look back at it and think about we actually, for the first time in the history of the 50 Project, skied more good conditions than bad conditions. Um, like pretty impressive. I kind of pretty much only one line did we ski in horrible, typical 50-like conditions, which is impressive. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, it ended up being a good season, but damn, is it stressful. And then for uh, I Am Home Now, I'm supposed to be pretty much on Mount St. Elias right now. Um, I'm actively trying to stay away from looking at weather forecasts, but it's been really tough too. But uh, we decided to postpone our trip. Um, team wasn't 100%. And for that mountain, you got to be 100%. And I looked at, you know, there's potential to replace individuals that were dealing with stuff, whether that's injuries or just timing or other um, factors. And kind of just, I didn't want to break up the team. I, the team had put in the effort last year. We understood the mountain. You know, one of the things I was thinking about a lot before then is like, things are going to get gnarly on that mountain at some point. And knowing how each individual is going to react in that situation, I think is crucial. Um, knowing how, what, like, I know how Bjarne is going to act when it gets steep and gnarly or a massive storm comes in, which is he's going to be calm and we're going to get through it. And to replace people to me seems like a threat to the team and puts your own kind of self at the forefront being like, no, like I feel strong. I'm ready. It's a good season. Let's go to Mount St. Elias. I need to tick this off my list. So ultimately, like, I think it's going to be the the right call. Um, but it is a little hard when you're kind of sitting there going like, oh man, I feel good. I feel strong. I want to get up there. Um, but ultimately, hey, mountain's not going anywhere. Um, I'm sure we'll try again next year. And um, I think it'll be that much cooler when it's the same team that put in the effort um, in the past and, you know, regroup and feel 100% and go for, go for a big one. Okay. Let's say you have to bet $5,000. Will the 50 project be done next winter, next spring? It will not. And I won't bet that. And the only reason is because there are the three cruxes. They still stand. We've talked about that. Two of them I haven't even attempted. One we attempted last year being Mount St. Elias. And a lot of them stack up about the same time frame. So you can't be in two places at once. Um, so ultimately, I hope to be very close to the end next year. But... To actually finish it, I think is a little 
physically impossible or just like (laughs) a little physically impossible. Yeah. Just, well, not even in the terms of like fitness and all that. It's just like literally like, well, the same time that university peak is in is the, probably the same time that Mount Robson is in the same time. We might be going to Baffin next year will be the same time I need to be on university. And that, you know, it's like all that kind of stuff. And then even, even that realization that like, it's better to just get a little bit more prep specific prep for these cruxes as opposed to bouncing line to line. Like I actually look forward to next year, maybe having like a week and a half off, two weeks off before we go to Mount St. Elias to like go down to the east side in California and go hike and climb a bunch of peaks. So you get pre-acclimatized, get your legs moving, have be really fit as opposed to what we frequently do, which is like the worst thing for you is like run around, go hit lines, run around, get in your car, drive across the country, go hit another line. And you just, you just doesn't set you up physically very well for these kind of big, big lines. Like getting old, man, I don't recover like I used to. <laughs> so, so I want to be, you know, I, I I love that feeling when you're in the mountains and you feel strong and you feel confident and it feels really shitty when you don't. And then sometimes when you're like coming off a line, you're tired, you're sore, and then you're going back out there just to like take something off. You're like, ah, this kind of, I, I want to feel that. Like I feel strong. I feel prepped. And you need a little time sometimes before some of these big lines to do that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm mostly psyched that you're like kind of get to call it a wrap on this season. You're healthy. No major injuries issues. I think I have a broken toe. I don't know. Do you really? Yeah, I think so. I got to, I got to go check it out. I kicked a rock (laughs) and down booties when I was taking a dump on the the traverse. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, And it swole up, it got really black and blue and I was like, ah, it's just sprained. But it's now been like three and a half weeks and it's still swollen. So, and still pretty stiff and I can't bend it. I think I actually broke it. How'd you break your toe on the 50 project? Well, (laughs) well, I was going to take a dump. It was in down (laughs) booties and I kicked a rock. (sighs) I mean... (laughs) checks out of all the things that could potentially go wrong on this project. Yeah, yeah. it definitely is in the in the stupidest way possible is generally yep. the way I get hurt. <laughs> all right. On that note, let's review some news. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Well, this is something I started reading about kind of uh, actually in like Reddit forums. And I saw these debates going back and forth. And there's this thing. I never heard of this. I'm not a part of this culture. Um, but it's in the through hiking world. There's this phenomenon called trail magic. And trail magic is you essentially are leaving goods of use for fellow hikers, kind of in a like a paying it forward style thing. So you potentially like cash um on the side of the trail some some chips some jerky some beer some whiskey something that is essentially nice for the next people coming through you know it seems like a nice treat you're on a huge long day you've hiked like 14 miles you've gone over a few passes and you come across like a a little ammo can and there happens to be some water and electrolytes and chips and you're like wow that's awesome but 
I'm starting to hear this is getting a little out of control <laughs> and I kind of have some questions about it. I mean, what do you think just on the very concept of leaving stuff on a trail in the backcountry for other hikers? Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, in the in the through hiking world and, you know, kind of ultra running world, I've really I've heard of the concept a lot, actually, but it is usually these very small, like specific gestures kind of things. And we'll have a link to this article. But yeah, I mean, like this, I I had never even conceived, right, of like what people leaving grills on the trail and, yeah. and things like that. And so... Uh I I like very much this idea of the small gesture or leaving water in a really dry, long section of the trail. But when, like, again, conceptually, it had never even occurred to me the kind of, like, stuff we're leaving unmanned on a trail, like, where that's gone. Here's an example, and this is from a Reddit forum. Back in 2014, I came to a spot on top of a mountain by Big Bear Lake. Some truly magical individuals hauled up an actual dumpster with a locking cover filled with food, soda, and beer. And they even hauled up a full-size couch next to it. I'll never forget that. That is way too much. Yeah. And, And I mean, you know, very quickly... I do go to the like leave no trace ethic and I'm like, wait, we're dragging couches out into areas now? Yes. So this is where I've kind of, I don't even think there's a gray area in this in all honesty. Like I think like you're saying, it's like a nice end of uh, gesture if you were to come across it and you are super thirsty, it'd be awesome. But to me, like it's just got to be cut out a hundred percent, like leave no trace because the, the problems with that are quite obvious. I mean, the first is like if other animals are getting into this, I know they're bringing locking dumpsters, but, but first off, other people might not necessarily secure it and animals are going to get into this. The second part to me is like, we specifically go into the backcountry to get away from civilization. To me, like one of the most special things about going into the wilderness is that feeling of discomfort. And all of our lives in normal society seeks comfort, whether that's like comfort in your income to comfort of your couch to heating. And like we, our whole lives are kind of dictated to making life easier. And one of the reasons why you go out there is to find your own barriers and to be uncomfortable. And when you throw these things out there, you start to lose that experience. Like I know Deep down, there's this feeling when you're like running out of food deep in the wilderness that like, you're like, oh God, this is, this could get bad. And when you're able to figure your way out through that feeling and get to a place where you're like, no, I can, I don't know, forage, I can hike my way out of here. You can survive on your own. That is like a uniquely gratifying experience. And to me, like the concept of trail magic is just taking that experience away from people. Like... I I know like me deep down personally, like if I was hungry, if I was thirsty, I wouldn't 
bypass that. But I also know that feeling like if I were to bypass that and seek out that water on your own to find that like hidden creek or, you know, like figure out where I can get water in the wilderness, like that experience is so much greater than just coming across a bag of chips and a, and a bottle of water. So, like I'm, I'm actually like pretty appalled by this culture in general. Yeah. A, a number of trail <laughs> angels just got real sad when they heard you say that you were appalled by this culture. I mean, I, I do think that trail angels, as they're called, or this uh, practice of trail magic, the intention of it is certainly, you know, good. These are well-intentioned acts, but ultimately, I do agree with you on this stuff. So, yeah. sorry, well-intentioned folks. Well, and I, I will say, uh, let me clarify too, the act of being a trail angel and a trail act isn't just leaving food for other people. Yeah. It does say it comes in many forms, like a ride into town or a shower in a bunk if you do come out of town. So, being a trail angel isn't necessarily just leaving a cache yeah, of food that's for right. people. So, um, I just, I guess maybe it's coming from just such a winter experience where I've never done a through hike like this. I've done through hikes in the winter. I've put caches in specifically for that, but it's exactly what you need to bring, putting in a cache that you mark and then you go across. So I've never experienced it. And to me, I, I don't know. I just think it like robs you a little bit of like the growth and experience. Like we were talking about before on the bugs to rogers traverse like it was the i kept referring it to as like drink concrete and toughen the fuck up trip because it really makes you do that and you kind of find some of your own limits and i think it's really important to work through the processes of figuring out exactly how much food you're going to need how much you can eat how do you ration that food and water all those kind of things is all just a part of the process of one learning about the wilderness, two, learning about yourself, and three, just having like a better connection to to both place and yourself. So, I, I'm, I just, I kind of wish it didn't necessarily exist and it seems like it's getting more popular because uh, maybe it just feels like you're robbing people of experience. Where are we going next? Oh yeah, we're going to the full Circus Everest expedition. So we're going to go those guys, uh, the first ever all black American expedition up Mount Everest vying for more than summit. Um, well, they did get the summit and they're all kind of safely returning. So they had a safe and uh, safe and successful expedition, which was really cool. Yeah. To read the, the sort of next tagline, and this is shout out to Jason Blevins, are we officially Blevinsing Blevins cornering right now, or do we have yet another? We probably have another one. I mean, it might be Blevins cornering, but yeah, I don't know. He takes takes a lot of focus of our podcast. He does. <laughs> Shout out to Jason, by the way. He uh, he was in Crested Butte a couple weeks ago, and we got to hang out again there. So always fun. But yeah, the the next line in this is climbers versed in both mountaineering and expanding participation in outdoor recreation, hope their mission to the top of Mount Everest opens doors for people of color. So one, I think you and I both want to just sort of send our congratulations uh, to the full Circle Everest Expedition team. You had a kind of an interesting take on this though, that um, you know, a lot of, I think, what we talk about in reviewing the news, this is stuff that is kind of, 
I don't know, I guess pretty internal for those folks who are already really a part of this kind of broad outdoor community. And your take on this was what? With the fact that this is a little less directed at some of the most core audiences of of mountaineering, of the outdoors and whatnot, though we all can sit here and appreciate that. To me, what this really is important for is the broader world. Um, a lot of these guys are actually incredibly talented climbers. Yep. And to, they could have gone to a bigger, or not a bigger, but a burlier mountain, more technical, something that might have, you know, in, in, inside the industry rang more like, um, I don't know, just had like a huge impact within the core of the industry. But to me, why this is actually really important is because they're going on the Today Show and they're sitting there beaming the Today Show out to millions of people. And there's people in Florida, there's people in West Virginia, there's people all over the country that have never really heard of mountaineering, but they've heard of Everest. They know it's the tallest mountain and they're seeing an all black team going up Everest and successfully summiting. That where I think is this is really truly important. It's almost like not directed towards us that are like listening to this podcast to people that are following every bit of news within the outdoor climbing and and ski world, but and it's more directed to outside of it. Like I can look at this and be like, yeah, awesome, great job, but I think there's a lot more people that are sitting on their couches and watching this who are going to be like, this is incredible. I never even can like thought that this something like this could happen. So I think it's almost pretty intentional that they did Everest as opposed to some other climbs. So pretty, pretty cool when you kind of start to think about it in that regard that this actually might help our goals of building diversity within the sport, inspiring people that don't necessarily have access to the mountains to get into something like climbing. Yeah. Well, well done group. And yeah, I'd love to I'd love to have a conversation with Phil Henderson on this uh, on this little program of ours, and um, yeah, hope we can make that happen sooner than later. For sure, yeah. No, I'd really be interested to hear more about it. I know they, you were saying there's potentially some films, something coming out, so they're being a little quiet about some of it, right? That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah but we'll see. All right, where to next? Well, this is kind of almost a follow-up of previous mm -hmm. podcasts that we've done. Um, something that we debated about the future of in in the past, and here's some news in this world. So, um, from Gear Junkie, um, outside laying off uh, eighty-five to ninety employees, or fifteen percent of their staff. So, if we remember that outside is rebranded Pocket Media. Pocket Outdoor Media was the uh, VC-backed um, fund slash company that was uh, pursuing and buying up a lot of media in the outdoor world. So I think it was 30 titles in general. Um, so now they're downsizing, which... Um, you know, I'm sure I could definitely sense in a little bit of the other outside pocket media, outside outside media, um, media people that were reporting on this, this little bit of like kind of twisting the knife, like ha ha ha. But like, I mean, that's not cool to celebrate 85 to 90 employees being um, laid off. But more than anything, it is kind of shifting 
And maybe uh, it's a sign of some of the goals moving forward, but also it's hard to read between the lines and say, is this because they're not being successful or is this because it was always in the plans? What's your take on that question? Oof. I'd probably say it was always in the plans. Mm -hmm. I would probably say, I mean, anytime there's mergers and acquisitions and consolidation, there's uh, pretty much always some sort of reduced headcount. Um, whether that's just like, you know, in the, those departments like HR that can centralized into one HR department for everybody. I don't know what the exact, um, titles and jobs that were reduced. So it's hard to say they're not telling people like, oh no, these were journalists or were these administrative people were these executives or what it is. Um, they, the one thing that's kind of buried in this too, is the fact that they're actually pretty much disappearing a majority of their print. Um, mm-hmm. according to Denver business journal, bike magazines, Peloton beta, as well as general fitness magazine, oxygen will disappear within the next six months. Um, And except for the flagship title outside magazine, most of the rest of the print roster will lapse into the background, publishing only one or two issues a year. So to me, what that signs is like these kind of layoffs were probably planned because it just is going along with their shift away from print to all digital, to a digital conglomerate that one subscription grants you access to outside to uh, ski to rock and ice to all these things all these individual titles um, digitally but the one thing I will say and this is I just kind of kind of laugh at this I hate this because you see it's been 10 years of this it remains to (laughs) this quote it remains to be seen what that quote immersive video and digital storytelling looks like and so they're saying they're shifting to immersive video and digital storytelling that's been said for 10 years and I'm going to tell you Video production is effing hard and making good video is really, really hard and it is really expensive and takes a ton of people. So I just, I hate when companies say that because you're like, do you really know? Like, I mean, I, I produce video for a living. I have like four people working on the 50 now, like four, not full-time, but pretty much kind of full-time people that are making the 50 project. And that's just me. So like to make as much video as they want to make, reducing your headcount definitely doesn't work to achieve those goals. (laughs) Right. Right. You're going to need some other folks coming in to do that. And I agree with you on the like, man, talk about things that are easier said than done. Like I could just say today, yeah, like Blister, we're going to start producing a lot more immersive video and digital storytelling cool you know like good luck my my other thing with that i have to say is if the idea is that this immersive video and digital storytelling is going to be the driver for paid subscriptions and memberships i would be a bit skeptical of that turns out there is a infinite, virtually infinite amount of video content that people can watch for free out there in the world. And so, you know, 
great. Our new thing is immersive video and digital storytelling. How does that fit with certain business goals of where you're trying to get the company from a revenue standpoint? You know, like, yeah, like honestly, good luck. I agree. Like I think about it, like I actually think it is a decent idea to have a subscription an all access subscription that accesses tons of these sites because in many ways, like for instance, for myself, like I will never subscribe individually to backpacker, but occasionally I found myself on backpacker reading articles, reading gear reviews, things that I like want, or so they've got something to offer me. It'd be really hard if there's a paywall on all this stuff. I would just go find that information in other places. But if I have an access to it and that it also grants me access to mountain biking, uh, mountain biking websites to outside, then you, you think about it. But me as an individual, it's still been pretty hard to actually jump to that wall. Like I have still yet to subscribe to this, even though I do think think it is a good idea. So what their their number one issue is not how do they get me, Cody Townsend, but how do they get me to jump that barrier? Where is that point where I will say, okay, I will subscribe. And it, it is interesting because we're seeing in the major media trends, like Netflix's huge loss of subscribers, um, whether that's because of inflation, whether that's because of economic concerns, whether that's because of content is a big signal right now. We've been, there's a lot of competition out there for subscription dollars. And there's like what you end up subscribing to says a lot about you and says a lot about where you want to put your money. So on its like from the 30,000 foot viewpoint, I think it is a good idea, but it all will come down to the details and the content that they produce that will hopefully get someone like myself to jump from, no, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay. I'll find this information in other ways. And then to, okay, I'm paying. You know, we launched a membership. I don't know if we were the first out there in kind of outdoor media. I, I'm not going to say at all that we were because I'm probably for just forgetting some other title or something. Totally. But this is obviously something that we started to do at Blister, what, five, six, seven years ago. And, you know, it's just interesting from a strategy point of view, what outside is doing and what I think you just articulated it well, it's like, here's a membership to go as broad as possible with all these titles in the outdoor space. Our approach is kind of the opposite of that, right? What we're doing is going really deep in a few verticals where we think we can provide information and content that you can get nowhere else in the world, right? And, you know, onus is on us to continue to show that value, whether it comes in ski or mountain bike or running, you know, and that is where our focus is. Just um, where can we really produce more things you know, in addition to the things we're already producing, where someone is just like, if I'm passionate about these sports, I 100% want to be able to access, you know, this stuff. And that's go, goes back to this is what then lets us to continue to do the independent work we do. And so that model's worked 
pretty well for us. And we're looking to ramp things up on that front, you know, but um, it's just interesting, different ways to go about this and how different media companies, whether they're in the outdoor space or not, are all trying to figure this out. And ultimately for us, it comes back to, we need to clear number one priority. We will maintain that independence when it comes to the review, the review work we do. And then just in the addition to that, I don't ever want to put out, and I kind of hate the word content, but I don't want to put out content that like none of us like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? At that point, there's just, the world's too big and interesting. Let's just go do other things, you know? And so I think those will be kind of the two primary things. And we just had a big team meeting in Crested Butte, and that's the stuff that we were going over. What are the new things we're going to be rolling out? and it's all stuff that we're genuinely excited about, you know? And I kind of think, I don't know. I can't say that like, we're not just like, I don't know. What's the thing we could do that hopefully gets all these other folks, you know, to subscribe. like, yeah, to yeah. Subs- it's, it's like, what are the needs? What are the, what are the cool, what are the clear value adds like to the community? And that's yeah. the stuff that we're kind of thinking through. Totally. It's all kind of how you frame and are looking at, what you're doing like literally the the main goal of like no i want to produce good content the people will come the audience will come versus what does the audience want how do we get to it and those just the way you think those things through can be the difference between success and failure and you can not saying you can't succeed on either one of those and you can't fail with either one of those but like it does be it is is huge to me i think personally with content you got to lead i think you have to be out in front to creating stuff that is not out there that people will value. Um, I think you guys did that with Blister. I think Mike Rogie's done it with Mountain Gazette, you know, of returning that around and the fact that that's been pretty successful just by offering something that is not out there in the slightest bit that you cannot get online. I think they've been very successful with that. So, I mean, I honestly personally hope for the best with outside. I really do like outside. I think it's been our industry standard for 40 years. And I think it is kind of, you know, Ben had such a history within the sport, had a history of such good storytelling, has launched the careers of a lot of good writers considering, you know, John Krakauer, Mark Sinnott, like people that have got on to bigger and place, bigger and better things kind of started with outside. So I definitely hope the best for it. And I hope this, this, these layoffs isn't a sign of something, a sign of chasing dollars versus content. Um, I, I hope they're, I hope they're successful. Where do you want to go next? Well, this one, you th- you throw it out there. You put this in here. Okay. This next one, I guess this was officially the uh, piece we had designated for our Blevins corner. But Jason was reporting on something that we here at Blister know pretty well. This is an article about Mountain Flow. You've heard us talk about Mountain Flow Eco Wax. Um, Well, Mountain Flow, in cooperation with Western Colorado University and Mesa State students, recently launched the industry's first fluoro wax take-back program. Fluorinated wax is now banned from all competitive skiing. However, it is still perfectly legal to sell and use for recreational purposes. 
Furthermore, ski racers who have accumulated pounds of this toxic wax have no way to dispose of it safely. So this is what the article is kind of about. I guess I kind of was interested to hear your take on this, Cody. One, this seems like a positive move, and yet it's like, okay, well, we've banned all this toxic waste from competitive skiing, but it's still out there in the world. And like, and I could go skin right now and still use whatever waxes I want. And so how we kind of wrap our heads around this, what you think of the initiative, those are the questions for the day. Yeah. Well, first off, I actually didn't know it was completely banned from competitive skiing. That's pretty interesting. I do remember being a ski racer and hearing about its toxicity. And they were like, you'd literally be like ironing it into your your skis for the like the 50th time as it's smoking. Well, not smoking, hopefully that's burning your wax. Um, but, you know, you're in this tight little closet in a garage somewhere waxing your skis and they're like yeah this puts holes in the ozone and gives you lung cancer and you're like cool i'm 16 waxing my skis i remember we knew about it but it wasn't really necessarily like yeah but this is the stuff that makes you go fast so you have to use it so it is good that they banned it because it really if if you're looking for an edge in speed every ski racer on the planet would use it if it even if it was toxic knowing that it gives you an edge in speed i mean I remember the little, we used to call them like the Coke bins. There's the pure 100% CF, the Swiss CF 100, which is 100% fluorocarbons. And it comes out in a powder. It's like a white powder. And it's over like back in the day, it was like $110 for an ounce of it. And you would rub that in with a cork right before you started your downhill run. And that stuff was like lightning fast. Um, I will say... um, I still have a little bit of it and I have used it three times in the last 10 years. Why? What were the three occasions? The three occasions, pawn skims, buddy, pawn skim competitions. (laughs) (laughs) All three times. Through all three times. I mean, you have a short in run and speed, you need to go super fast. So, wax them onto your fat skis and you're going to get across. I will say I'm currently undefeated in the Cushing Classic as well. I've entered three uh-huh. times and I've won three times. So, um, maybe I'm throwing an asterisk onto every one of those wins now and people are looking at me yep. like, what the yep. hell? But honestly, uh, after reading this article and knowing that there's maybe a solution to turning this stuff in, maybe I'll, maybe I'll turn it in and you know, be, be a good human. Cause all of a sudden I was thinking about it. You don't really think about it, but he was like, wait a minute, I'm putting on floros and then skiing across a lake, a little, uh, pond. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. That's probably pretty toxic. So, um, it's cool that the mountain flow is trying to do something like this. I mean, the one thing they do say in it is they still don't know what to do with it. There's no recommendation on how to actually destroy this. Um, but the fact that they're putting out there, they're like, hey, we really shouldn't be using this is important. Like, like I said, I mean, I, I've, I've actually, I'm a fan of Mountain Flow stuff. I've used their skin wax and just buy it. Um, and it's worked pretty good. And I do think like knowing that I'm like, hey, I'm not putting fluorocarbons on or any toxic. It's like a water-based uh, wax is kind of nice when I'm going out there to know that you're not throwing stuff into the water table that's going to immediately melt out, go into lakes and creeks and be toxic. Totally. And I mean, props to kind of the 
the race community and to FIS, International Ski Federation, for banning this. And I would love to see a world where we did just start seeing, and not just the kind of outdoor industry, even though I do think we ought to be leaders in this area, but it's funny. I mean, you and I have talked about like Formula One racing and, you know, I know that, I mean, that sport is only increasing in popularity right now and it would be cool for other sports to just be looking at ways where they could be making moves that, you know, from a race perspective, there is no downside. I'm just going to say no downside. I think that the performance of these plant-based ski waxes are getting so good that I think the speed, if you're just interested, right, from a performance point of view, we are either already there and I think we might already be there. And well, it doesn't matter. It's now banned, right? So you've leveled the playing field. But I think actually we're, even if they weren't banned, the downhill performance of plant-based ski waxes can very much rival non-plant-based ski waxes or, you know, toxic ski waxes. So I'd, it'd be, it will be cool. And I hope that we see other industries just continue to look at what we can do. And I do still look forward to the time when I, I'm not, I haven't been converted to the F1 thing yet. Yeah. But like when those are electric. Um, yeah. Well, they're already doing that. There's Formula E that exists There's right Formula now. Formula E. They've already done it. They've gone from 12-cylinder engines to hybrid six-cylinders. And that's why, like, the blinking red light is literally a battery charger, and they can use that for extra power. Um, and all of all people, Lewis Hamilton has been a huge proponent of trying to shift over to more electric-based car racing. So, I think eventually it's going to be. and It will get there. Yeah, and it already has increased its efficiency. So what they've done in Formula One mirrors what FIS has done is like, no, we're going to ban fluoros. Because I'll push back on saying like, no, fluoros are way faster than plant-based waxes. It's wild how fast fluorocarbons are. I'm not sure though that you can say that categorically. That meaning, meaning because, and I'm, I'm, there's certain conversations that i've had like off record yeah meaning what is publicly available to consumers right now versus what could be done that's that's where i'm holding out right yeah but there's just there's certain material properties like it goes into we've had this talk about um water repellent and oil repellent like dwrs into like literally it is the only like I can't molecule, I'm not saying this right, that repels both oil and water. And you can't make this in any other way. It is unique. So to me, like I look at it and fluorocarbons, like they they are unbelievably good at repelling water. Like you can watch the water beat up onto your ski and just go lightning fast. And it wears off really quick, which in hindsight is really bad that these fluorocarbons just wear right off into the snow surface and then are a part of it. But no, it is really fast, but it doesn't matter because we're not measuring historical downhill speeds to like, oh, like Vengen in the 2000s. It was like everyone was going faster in the fastest time. No, it's a competition on that day. So as long as the playing field is level, you're fine. Same goes with Formula One. 
there are certain aspects of Formula One where they're going faster and there are certain aspects where they're going slower historically. So it's like, it doesn't matter because the, the, the juice is in the race of the day. Like it's not in the historical documentation. So you ban it because it's bad for the world. And then everyone's back on a level playing field. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it is interesting that Fist was leading on this. And I think it's interesting that our consumer doesn't necessarily know this. So eh, it's important. Like I said, like I, it's one of those things, like there's a lot of subjects in our life that we kind of know you're like, Hey, that's toxic. Don't use it. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like I'm going to still cook with this Teflon pan. And then eventually kind of more and more reports come out to it and it gets reaches a fever pitch. And you're like, we should probably not be cook. Anyone should ever cook with Teflon ever again. Um, same goes with this style of argument so so i think it's good that mountain flow is trying to do something about this trying to make it you know doing a pr push pushing it out to jason and to to major media saying like we're trying to do something about fluorocarbons Mm -hmm. where to next well more depressing news um now that it's summer or aka fire season um this was a huge piece of news that came out um, that essentially the FDA, which is run the FDA, the US uh, US Department of Agriculture, pardon me, that runs the Forest Service, uh, their leadership has um, decided to pause all prescribed fires. Um, and the reason for it is because they've now had a lot, uh, a recent history of prescribed fires not behaving as they intended and escaping and creating very large fires, which is always the, the threat of prescribed fires and prescribed burns. But um, they're halting all prescribed burns for... Uh, a short period of time to review. And it says like two things about it. One, that we're in a new environment, like all their years and decades of experience with prescribed burns are all of a sudden that experience is not translating to our new environments, to more arid climates, to drier climates, to hotter days. And you know, setting up prescribed burns are all of a sudden escaping when they don't know, when they don't think they should have, but we're in a new world. So they have to figure it out how to do this, which is really scary because prescribed burns are probably our single best tool to thinning forest to try and prevent massive wildfires. Yeah, a couple notes from this article. Maybe some listeners have a better sense of this. I really did not. This is from the Forest Service Chief Randy Moore. He says, there are an average of 4,500 prescribed fire projects annually. I take that that's in the United States, not beyond. Yeah, it's got to be. So 4,500 prescribed fire projects annually. 99.84% go according to plan. That equals slightly more than one escape per every 1,000 prescribed fires or about six escapes per year. And I do think that's some helpful context. Like we see these fires and it's awful when they get out of control. And 
my reaction is often like, what the hell are we doing? Why can't we figure this out better? And so it is a bit helpful for me to be like, well, you know, for more to say, well, 99.84% of the times, percent of the time we do get this correct. And yet, as you say, times they are a changing. Yeah, because the context is this comes from Wildfire Today, um, which is kind of a blog route of wildfire news. And it says at least two prescribed fires escaped in New Mexico in April. The Hermit's Peak Fire escaped from Las Dispensas prescribed fire northwest of Las Vegas in April 6th. Um, on April 22nd, it merged with the Calf Canyon Fire, which was reported April 19th, where another prescribed fire was ignited about three months earlier. Um, now, a month after the Calf Canyon Fire was reported, the Forest Service is saying the cause is still under investigation. So, contextually, this spring and, you know, the Southwest had a really poor water and snow year. All of a sudden, there's been two major fires that are potentially caused by prescribed fires and prescribed burns. And I think we do need a cultural shift, um, our consciousness of just being like, people are so quick to be like, these idiots, what are they doing? They caused a giant fire. Why would they do it on that day? And you're like, well, these these guys have a pretty high hit rate, you know, like you're saying, 99.84%. There's scientists, there's men and women within these departments that have been studying this. They know what they're doing. And occasionally, yes, it escapes. But to me, what I think they paused it is because they're like, here are two big fires and an exceptionally dry season that have just escaped back to back. Okay, maybe we do have to reevaluate how we're doing things and that we're just maybe in a different different world that our decades of experience and science behind this may have to change a little bit. I'm not a wildfire expert, but I I I, I try to trust experts. I, I hate one of my biggest pet peeves in the world is people just thinking everyone besides themselves are idiots, especially when it comes to like in worlds of this and in, in bureaucracy, people think everyone in the bureaucracy is an idiot. And you're like, no, there's a lot of smart, talented, passionate people working in this. But to me, it's just kind of scary. One more thing I want to say on this. So Randy Moore, the Forest Service chief, he also says in this article, our 10-year strategy to confront the wildfire crisis includes prescribed fire and in fact, increases its use as well as other treatments, by up to four times the current treatment levels in the West. So, just to recap here, we're in a new situation. We've had, historically, a 99.84% success rate, but we're about to go about four times more prescribed burns. So, okay, but we're in a new situation, but we're going to do four times as many. So, this is just interesting, complicated, and it seems like it's about to get like more complicated because we're going to try to ramp up our use of prescribed burns. So anyway, in interesting things. And yeah, I am absolutely no wildfire expert either. We intend to be talking to more wildfire experts as this is obviously becoming not a less relevant thing. We were just told by the chief of the Forest Service, we're going to be ramping up more prescribed burns. Interesting times. And yeah, obviously, like talk about an area where we need to get as close to 100% as possible in terms of success rates. Yeah, uh, it's uh, 
I will say, like, the fire issue, we've said it here and everything I've read about it. It's so complex and things are going to get worse before they get better. I do. It, it is, you know, it is a good thing that they're saying that they're going to go four times more prescribed fires. It essentially says that they're really like trying to tackle this crisis head on. Um, but the one thing I will say is quite often politics are going to get in the way. Um, and I'm about to uh, go against like thinking like everyone's an idiot because our idiot congressman in our area, um, Tom McClintock, introduced uh, legislation that is essentially reinstating the 10 a.m. rule that we've talked about on this podcast and previous, which was what a lot of fire historians and scientists say is the reason why we're in the crisis we're in is because of the fact that like wildfire suppression became the de facto goal of all wildlife, uh, wildland management. Um, he introduced a bill recently along with Car Congressman Doug LaMalfa um, to immediately suppress wildfires on national forest system lands and put an end to uh, the policy of letting fires burn. Um, and that comes on the heels of last year, a uh, fire in California that they decided to let burn and then took out of town. And that's, it sucks. It's that is tragic. But ultimately, like the scientists and historians and everyone's saying, like, there's in some of these places that there's so much wildland, the only way we're going to do anything about this fire crisis is to reset ourselves and to let them burn and to let the forest regrow itself. Um, but then you get idiot politicians who are trying to make headlines to say that, no, we need to reinstate policies a hundred years ago that go against all science. So, um, ultimately, like at first when I read that headline, I was like, oh no, I thought, I thought the politicians were winning. I thought it was something cause this came on the heels of the McClintock's, um, a bill and i was like this is not good but you kind of still see that there is hope for this and they're just doing a little pause because it's like yeah we're we're living in different times different times do we make it through our news stories are we are we going to what we're reading and watching yeah i think so i think yeah i think that was kind of our news um for well because it's only been a couple okay. weeks since we did our last podcast so there wasn't as much yeah. stuff to talk about um you know we, we're trying to get back on our normal timeline there now that my schedule is more we're normal trying. hopefully <laughs> that's right well yeah last time you had a incredibly disappointing what you're reading and watching segment that's okay you i did. stepped in tried to take up your slack what do you got for us today top gun i watched top gun <laughs> I'm so jealous. I, I, we already discussed this uh, off air, but um, I'm yeah. so jealous. Well, first off, I will say, okay, first time being in a movie theater in plenty of years. I will say, movie theater experience, great, big sound, big screen, all that stuff is great. But being back inside with a bunch of people, maybe we haven't been around people enough to think that I was like, oh my god, it's so annoying. There's so many people being like. Oh, is that Maverick? Oh, is that Goose? And you're just like, dude, shut the F up. Like being back inside in a crowded theater with people, I was like, oh my God, this is awful. Like shut the F up, people. Like just let the movie play out. Um, so that was interesting experience. It was like cool theater experience, both awesome and shitty. I have a tangential question yeah. to ask you. This is a relationships dynamics question, yep. actually. 
So if you and Elise are watching something, who is more likely to talk, say, during a movie that it's just the two of you and you're watching something? Are you the talker or is she the talker? Neither. We we shut the hell up yeah. and don't talk about it. Oh my god. I this is shout out to Elise. This is this is the this is the woman yeah. I'm looking nah. for. I, I am a I am a no talking whatsoever once the once the thing starts. There could be like a line that you know, one thing. Wait, wait, what who is that character again? And then tell you. Okay. Back to whatever it was. But and that would come from either one of us. So I would worry we are a okay, yep. no talking in the household during watching. Yeah, household. So well aligned. I think the 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 biggest thing here is I think this this is a topic that does not get talked about much, right? You hear about in relationships. Well, you should have a similar uh, take on kind of finances or yeah. something like that. I'm go- I want to submit that like if somebody if two people are big talkers, that's fine. But you need to be on the yeah. same page because if you're not in alignment on this one. Yeah. Not great. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I never thought about that, but I think that is actually crucial. It should be in your, like your dating profile, but no one would admit yep. to actually being a talker, um, you know, because we all look down about it so much. I don't know. I disagree. I, I bet there are, I bet there are some people out there. They're looking for their fellow talker, yeah. right? And maybe they've been shamed mm-hmm. all their lives by some like us who are like, you stop talking right now, shut your mouth. Yeah. Right. And so they just need to find their perfect match. I, I think that those folks exist. I wonder if anybody will have the courage, like either on our Instagram post on this or on the, in the comments section on our website to be like, I love talking through the movie and I am looking for my perfect match. And I will say if you're at home, like there was one when we, Elise and I watched Westworld for a bit. And that was a show where either one of us would hit pause to discuss some of the things going through it because I thought that show did provoke a lot of conversation in certain ways. And we would pause and have a discussion about it. But that was almost like we were it was intentional. Like we wanted to talk through some of the, the philosophy that that and the questions that that show was bringing up. But otherwise, you know, you're not that talker that is asking like, what's going to happen to this person. You're like, they'll tell you in the movie if you just shut up, they're they're going (laughs) through it. So we're definitely not that. Um, I will say it was pretty awesome to go back to a theater besides people talking and go back into that kind of like summer movie mindset. Like it is the summer movie thing is cool. Going to a movie where you're just escape for a little bit and you walk out pumped up. That was a fun time. Like here's this just blockbuster action flick with just rad action. And like, yeah, that was awesome. It's fun. And I I think we've missed that as a culture. And I think Top Gun is going to be singularly responsible for bringing people back to the theater. Like theaters have been open, Mm -hmm. but this is obviously, this is breaking records. Like it, uh, this is Tom Cruise's biggest opening weekend ever. So, um, pretty cool to see. And I think ultimately, I remember being really bummed that they kept kicking this can down the road and they kept being like, no, we're not releasing it. We're not releasing it. I think the studio was really smart to be like, no, we're going to release this once COVID fears are down enough where people are going to be able to return to a theater and enough theaters are open that people are going to 
want to go to this and do it during now or Memorial Day weekend, early summer. Hey, it's it's summer now. Summer movie season officially kicked off. So um, crazy that the first movie I ever bought on VHS, I saved up money when I was like 11 years old to buy t- Top Gun and Top Gun, the return of Top Gun is going to save movie theaters. <laughs> it might. 36 years. Wow. After the first one came out. It's so wild. I was three when that came out. Huh. 36 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Top Gun, the first one was one of my favorite movies ever. I was definitely one of those kids that was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And I went there with um, my agent's son and I could see he's about 10 years old. We walked out of that theater and he was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. (laughs) Yeah. Remarkable. I, I want badly to go see this i'd need to check like where i could even how far i would have to travel to get to a theater where this is being shown uh but i yeah i i can't wait so yeah oh my quick review it is cheesy but it is fun so okay yeah. you got you were making fun of me because i told you what we got on this call i was like i don't want any spoilers <laughs> And you're like, that's the dumbest thing. I was like, I just, I want to go in as, you know, uninformed as possible. And you're just like, dude, what's happening yeah, to you? Yeah, spoiling. But I still stand by the this. The most American <laughs> movie franchise on a blockbuster weekend. What, I'll give you one guess. Who wins? Just one guess. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. We're moving on. <laughs> this neither counts, I guess, as what I'm reading or watching, but it is a thing I'm doing. I'm actually heading to Italy and France next week. I'm going to be over there for about two and a half weeks and some very cool reporting on Blister is going to come from this. I'll just say that as a bit of a teaser for now. I'll, I'll spare all the backstory, but what I am doing right now is I downloaded an app uh, called Babel, mm-hmm. and I was like, I've never, I, I have formally studied some French in my life. I've never studied Italian, and I, I have studied Spanish and Latin and French, and so I have like a decent language and Greek and some German, some other stuff. But uh, I was like, wow, I've never actually sat down to like study Italian at all. And so that's what I'm doing on this app. And I did a quick search. So I don't know if Babbel is like the best one out there or if they're all kind of the same, but I've really enjoyed this. And I highly recommend, you know, go find whatever language learning app you like the most. Um, I'm using Babbel so far. I think, I guess so good, but I don't have really many comparisons here. But just what a cool way in your spare time to go learn a language. Yeah. And, you know, I've been, I've been talking a lot about this whole, I hate, I hate being like the dumb American rolling into, you know, a foreign country. And on the other hand, I'm extremely grateful for the fact that we are lucky enough that many places, you know, the people do speak either very good English or pretty good English. But I always do lament this a bit, right? You go to Belgium and normal people might be fluent in four to five languages. This is not something that is 
typically true of Americans, and I'm not proud of that fact. So anyway, I don't know, fellow Americans, download an app. I'm trying Babbel right now, or let me know if you think there's a far superior language learning program, because I will use it. But this has been really fun to just kind of out of left field, you know, be learning a, another language. And yeah, when you have some Latin and Spanish and French, like it's actually pretty easy so far, but really enjoying this. No, I agree with you. Um, I was lucky. I actually graduated college with a fluency in Spanish. It was part of my major that I had to graduate with fluency in, in one language other than English. And I did with Spanish. The hardest part with language learning, and this was goes back to my linguistics degree, is that you pretty much if you don't practice it, you forget it and the way that your brain works. And I'm super bummed because I, I used to speak Spanish on the daily when I was working in kitchens and working in restaurants. And then I would go to South America for like two months and speak Spanish. And I was like, I could just walk into like, I remember being in like Southern Chile where very few people speak English and just was like, I was the translator for our whole crew and it was awesome. And then I could just have conversations with people and it's just like so enriching to, to be able to learn about things that way. And then over the years, I started going more to France than, than anywhere that's Spanish speaking than South America. I'd stopped working in restaurants and man, I've pretty much forgotten everything. Um, which is a bummer. I do have a little bit of a dream one day and this comes into the family of like, you know, moving the family over to like France for like three, four years and, uh, you know, having Indy go to school in France and learn French or something like that or wherever it is. I've always kind of, I, I think it's like a unique gift to be able to speak a second language just because it opens up the world so much more. Um, totally. And by the way, one more one more thing on this things have been so busy at blister over the last like 12 years, you know, you think like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, learn Italian or brush up on my French or Spanish or whatever, but who's got the time. Right. And that's what I think is really great about this app is you can use it in a very digestible way. Mm -hmm. And so like lots of folks, are we're finding time to scroll around on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or something. And I think these like language learning apps just like use those and displace some of that random time of scrolling around. That's kind of my suggestion to people who are like, oh, this sounds a little bit intriguing, but like it's bite-sized, you know, you and you can set like, I only want to do five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes or 30 or whatever, but like you can just set. And I think this is something that I am proposing ought to eat in to random scrolling time. Yeah. We, we would all be better as a people in society if we were less time spent on social media. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and as this is cool, right? This is one of those things where a new, not brand new, but like a newer technology like apps didn't used to be a thing. You couldn't really learn a language that way. And I think this is, it's on your phone, you know, just give up some of the random scroll time and like learn something cool. So that's my take on that. I want to actually move, actually, I was going to say sort of related question, but it's totally unrelated. I still think that one of the best things about my life is that I am not on Twitter at all. You and I, this has been a kind of long-standing disagreement mm -hmm. of ours. I'm curious, one, 
I've asked you, I check in with you on this from time to time, because every time I hear media people talking about Twitter, they're like, oh my God, I hate it. I should just get off, but I'm addicted. Yeah. I'm like, God, like, well, I'm not on. And so I guess my life is better. How are you feeling about it these days? And then obviously more directly thoughts on if Musk were to buy Twitter. Um, I think it'll have no effect on the toxicity of what Twitter is like to me. So a lot of it is like obviously people's interpretations and like there's this kind of culture on Twitter that I see that is essentially consistently dunking on people. Like everything's got to be a witty dunk and you got to like someone has an opinion. And then if you want to share your counter opinion, it's a witty dunking on that people. And I've really, really gotten tired of it. Yet we are all a part of it. I have done that. I've done that a ton in my past. And I'm realizing like, just stop doing that. Um, I'm becoming less and less interactive on Twitter, even though I'm there. I've been trying to unfollow those accounts, those people that just are constantly dunking on it and just using it as a sort of RSS feed for news or interesting takes. Um, so to me, yeah, like that's just like the culture that is kind of fostered on there because again the that gets the most engagement and that gets the most kind of like you do see your take and someone has it and they dunk on this other account and you're like ha ha that's that's fun it's exciting i don't see how that could change unless musk goes to like completely eliminating the algorithm but i also think that culture has been kind of kind of uh fostered so much on there that I would see it hard to go away unless you get punished for something like that. Um, you know, there's talk about going to Twitter a subscription model or high users pay like $2.99 a, day, a, a month to do it. And maybe some of that will change it. But I just don't see how that will happen because of all people, Elon Musk is one of the worst when it comes to that. He will, he constantly tries to dunk on people. Like he frequently dunks on Elizabeth Warren and um, Bernie Sanders. And so I, I don't see why he would actually want to change that because that's what he does himself. So, yeah. And it's just, there's parts of Twitter that get boring because of that. It's like watching a basketball game. Like if, you know, you watch a big dunk and you're like, wow, that was rad. But imagine if that happened every play, you'd be like, every split, yeah, you're yeah. like, okay, Jesus. But yeah. He, that's the one good thing about it is you can consciously go in and unfollow those accounts. Like, um, I didn't, I haven't done it quite yet, but I was on the drive yesterday. I was like, I follow this one account, lol GOP, and they're kind of funny, but they participate in dunking on like takes from the right all often. And I'm like, I gotta unfollow them. They're just, it's not that engaging. It's just, it doesn't add to the, the, the conversation and it just kind of makes the whole culture worse. You think Musk ends up closing on this? Like, does he actually buy Twitter? God, I have no idea. I'm going with no. I'm going with no. I'm kind of, I would, I'm almost leaning that way too. Like, and I don't know. He's just, he's interesting, man. The eccentric billionaire who is kind of just like every other billionaire out there. Um, very business driven, very self-interest driven. And um, I did watch that documentary that Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli did about him. The I forget, The Return to Space. It's on Netflix. Um, it was interesting. Um, you know, it's not like an in-depth look at it. It's just like an in-depth look at kind of 
how hard it actually was to build a private rocket company, which is fascinating. But I, I wouldn't say doesn't paint Elon in like a negative or positive light. You're just kind of like, okay, he's pretty driven and trying to achieve this goal. Um, but when it comes to what he's becoming now, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I have no idea, but I would lean on he's probably going to back out. That's where my money is. Okay, I'll go two things pretty quick. I'm still, I've mentioned it before, I am slowly working my way through East of Eden by Steinbeck. I'm still, I'm just blown away by the writing. Yeah, Steinbeck is so good. I will not like speed up. The The writing is incredible. So yeah, I'm I'm working my way slowly, intentionally and kind of savoring this, but um, yeah, still pretty astonished and find myself astonished kind of on every page. Um, so really enjoying that. And then um, randomly started watching A River Runs Through It. The movie? And I'm I'm like, yeah. Ah, yeah. And just like kind of doing like Great movie. 20 minutes a night here and 20 minutes a night, you know, like finding bits of time. The biggest takeaway from the film for me is, and again, I mean, I, you also get this while reading East of Eden, but- my God, you know, the film takes place kind of 1917 through the end of the 1920s. You know, that's kind of the main era. And I'm like, just watching it, it feels like the movie took place about 500 years ago. Yeah. You know, like, look, it's like, this was only 100 years ago. Yeah. And it feels so radically different, you know? No no one's pulling out a phone, Right. To call anyone or text or be staring at them at a party. And um, I don't know, I it's been uh, one of the things that I wasn't expecting, but was just to be like, wow, what a different world just a hundred years ago. Yeah. You know? I know. I think it's so hard to sometimes take a step back and look at like how rapidly the world has changed just in your lifetimes. Like I'm 39 years old and yeah. you think about, you're like where it's gone to where it is now. And then you think about it in a hundred years and yeah, I, I've always heard, I have not, I, I watched the movie when I was young, loved it. Definitely was an influence in wanting to get into fly fishing. Maybe we still make jokes about it as fly fishers. He, like, he called it shadow casting. <laughs> Just like, yeah. <laughs> um, but the book I've actually heard is amazing. Norman McLean, like yeah. uh, uh, yep. Mike Rogie always counts it as like one of his top five yep. books. Um, so one of these days I got to read it. Yep. Same, same. And uh, I intend to, but I was just like, oh, I saw it sort of there. And I was like, let me, let me start in on this a little bit. And, and uh, man, it is a, it is a much slower world and it is, it's a slow film, right? And, but it, it is really interesting to think about our modern lives. And by the way, I live in a tiny, tiny rural <laughs> town. So like, and yet it still feels like wildly different. And so anyway, uh, interesting. So that's it. I'm done. Do you have anything else to tell us about? A uh, quick one. I've, I've been trying to go back and watch kind of more classic movies, those movies that stand the test of time. I watched for the first time Goodfellas. You're kidding me. You had not seen Goodfellas. I had not seen Goodfellas. And I watched it twice in three days because that is an incredible movie. <laughs> I... 
it's like hard to like not keep it in your like top 10 list because that oh, unbelievable yeah. and you know rest in peace ray Liotta. i like watched it like the few days right before he passed away but just top to bottom and then even watching it the second time was even better like god so i'm you know just like you're kind of doing i think sometimes when you're you know, those movie that movie came out in 1990. I was seven years old. My parents weren't going to allow me to watch Goodfellas. And then if it doesn't come out, it's not on your radar. But going back and watching some of this stuff, like reading classic literature like Steinbeck and whatnot can be – it's just – it's really powerful because you're like, oh, the true things, the, the things that are just so powerful, they stand the test of time. Like Goodfellas, that's on that list, man. Such a good movie. Totally. Yeah. Like just remarkable in so many different ways. Totally. And you just don't even see it. It's hard to know the context of it until you kind of listen to it. And I went and listened to the rewatchables pod about it after. And the, the context that you don't know that like, no, that revolutionized the way movies were made. That revolutionized the way stories were told. The fact that it goes through this like romanticizing of gangster life and then ends in this flurry of everybody gets punished for that and the last 20 minutes are like literally like painful to watch was so intentional because you're like wow these guys are awesome this is cool i want to do this and then you're like no it's awful this the this is the the consequences of their actions is wrapping up in these last 20 minutes and that the the paranoia scene at the end when he's staring up at helicopters you're just like uncomfortable which is like such a powerful tactic in a movie so yeah good fellas good for you i'm psyched you i'm psyched you've seen it now yeah real good so but yeah we should uh let these audiences go <laughs> Hey, but one thing maybe before we do, are we going to introduce a new segment on reviewing the news? I feel like we should. We should put it out there now. I I feel like it'd be kind of fun. Um, You know, I do sometimes think with reviewing the news, we kind of end up, there's a lot of news that we're, we're trying to bring up topics that have some sort of debate to them, not just like literally saying what the story is and moving on. And we kind of end up falling into the similar traps. So I kind of have this feeling of like, yeah, we're going to continue to try and find interesting news stories, but I'm really curious about trying to create a segment about like what mountain town advice and interacting with our, with our audience, all hundred people out there. Yep. If we can get all hundred <laughs> of them to write us. Damn you. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, but like, you know, we've, we've lived in mountain towns our whole lives. We're, we're on the older side of things. I kind of want to hear some of the, our, our grizzled wisdom, grizzled wisdom out there to be like, Hey, youngins, I know you're dealing with this issue in a mountain town. Here's our advice. So, um, yeah, this, this could be relationship advice. This could be work advice. This could be, you know, you're living with four roommates and you're having questions about, you know, logistics about that. You need us to settle an argument for you. Yep. And I think we should try this. We'll see. So what people can hit us up, send us a, they can send us a DM on the Blisters Instagram page or how should we go about soliciting sort of life advice questions? Um, I don't know. You're, you, 
<laughs> you will run Blister and have all the emails. I feel like you should come up with a um, email address specifically for Mountain Town advice, and okay. we can get the viewers to submit there. Like we're literally, we've been talking about this, but we're kind of like spitballing it while li- yeah, live in, the, in real in time. The real podcast. If you couldn't tell. Is that what it's called? Is it Mountain Town Advice? I think so, because we want to keep it different than necessarily, like, obviously some of the issues will be the same as the wire world, but we're, you know, that's where we're focused on. We live in mountain towns. We live in small towns. You know, um, we often, like, even today, I talked about at the top of the episode, we talked about, like, Coffee Corner, and then we have Blevins Corner. (laughs) So, I was like, should this be Life Coach Corner? But uh, I, th- I think probably your notion of, you know, mountain town advice o- or listeners, feel free to send in your suggestions here. Yeah. So let's do it this way for now until we figure out a better system. And then if we get just crickets, if no one's writing us in, maybe maybe it's like, OK, yeah, the world doesn't isn't interested in this segment. But uh, let's give it a whirl. There is, in fact, only 100 listeners. <laughs> right. Yeah. The- <laughs> Tell you. <laughs> People, listen, Cody continues to just slander us. If you are one of our many thousands of listeners who has yet to leave a rating or review of the Blister podcast, I am calling on you now to please leave a rating or a review and just say, love the show. You know, feel free to say you love it more when Cody is not on here. (laughs) I think we have 300 some ratings. So by your math, Cody, I think we, okay, we have 330 ratings of the Blister podcast. So you're claiming that the 100 listeners have gone back three times over (laughs) to leave... (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't even know what's happening. But please, dear listeners, I'm tired of this. It hurts. It hurts every time. It hurts every time Cody makes these jokes. So um, leave us that rating or review. And then if you would like us to read and try to sort out and offer our advice on whatever question you might have uh, for Mountain Town advice, You can send us a direct message on our Blister Instagram page, or you could leave us an email in the contact us section of the Blister website. And we'll put, we'll try to put a link to that if I remember in the show notes to this episode. So let's see what you got and um, we'll see if we can help you out a little bit. Yeah, totally. (laughs) All right, man. I should let you go. I'm psyched you're home. You're finally off the road. Get to hang out with Indy and Elise. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm happy too. It's been a few weeks and uh, get to, well, they're actually gone right now and showing up today. So I'm excited to see my kid for the first time. So it's a whole different world when you got a kid and changes your outlook on things and really excited to be home for that reason alone. Well, say hi to both of them from me. Yeah. Good catching up as always. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from the entire Blister team, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be talking to you again this Tuesday on our Off the Couch podcast, this Thursday on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and then this Friday... We have our 200th episode of Gear 30. And what we're doing for that episode is running part two of the conversation we had with the 
CEO of ATK Bindings, Davide Indulti. Part one is a great conversation. Part two is also really interesting. And so if you want to know what is really going on in the tech bindings world, you need to subscribe to Gear 30 and be sure to catch this past episode number 199. And then this Friday's episode number 200 of Gear 30. So that's what we've got on tap for you this week. And we will talk to you real soon.